You are listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. A new proposal to try to manage short-term vacation rentals on Oahu got its first airing. The Planning Commission held its first public hearing yesterday afternoon on the administration bill. The proposal expands the resort district in Waikiki to include the Mauka side of Kuhio and the area realtors called the Gold Coast. It also expands the resort areas at uh, Kulima and Ko'olina and Makaha. We plan to hear different viewpoints as this bill goes through the process. Today, we start with the Waikiki Improvement Association. Is this plan for the better or worse? We talked to Executive Director Rick Egged, who was the first to testify on the issue. The particular change I think that is most important is to go from a 30-day definition of short term to 180 days. The 30-day dodge was being used quite regularly by those who are trying to stay technically legal but still run a vacation rental. So what they would do is agree that they would only make one rental during the course of the 30 days. So this is one of the changes that personally I had recommended. And the change to 180 days, which is consistent with state law, actually uh, makes a lot of sense. And there were some buildings in Waikiki that were non-conforming but had been renting out rooms for the short term. But it then, I guess, fixes that problem. Well, it does because what it does is allows those establishments to uh, actually convert into a hotel. So they would have to go through the process of rezoning into a hotel within three years. In the interim, they'd be able to continue to operate. That's right. my understanding I've seen and walked through some of those buildings. I believe it's the, the Banyan down there. It is set up like a hotel. It is. And I, and I think that the city is recognizing that and is giving them an avenue to become legal. And we have heard from the hoteliers that they just think that there needed to be you know, more enforcement when it came to platforms like Airbnb or VRBO. Yes. And again, I can't speak for those organizations, but it's my understanding that they are willing to cooperate with the city, but the city sort of has to get its procedures in place for what they're going to recognize as legal units and so on. And so I think the passage of these amendments would create a much simpler process at the city. What are the other pros? The main thing is there's a lot of concern that on Oahu, as many as 10,000 units are being used for vacation rentals, a large portion of them in residential areas. And the concern is that they should be in the housing market. That's what they're zoned for. That's what they're built for. We have uh, seen numbers that say that we're at least 20,000 housing units short. So obviously, this is a big contributor there. And so I think getting those units back into the housing market will make a difference in the community. From the visitor industry standpoint, we're hearing all Every time I, I go to a meeting or talk to individuals from various parts of the community, I'm hearing that there's a lot of concern over the fact that, you know, in 2019, there were uh, 10 million visitors. But the feeling was we went over the top that that was too many. Well, if you take all of the legal units in the state and fill them up at 90% year-round, you get only between 7 and 8 million visitors. And that actually doesn't happen that way. So really all the rest of those 2 million the 3 million visitors were staying at vacation rentals. Getting this chaotic situation under control is vital for our community. It's become a major source of community conflict. You know, we all know that uh, Waikiki has changed. We recently talked to uh, HGA head John DeFries, who gave us a different perspective of, of growing up in Waikiki and what that was like. You know, there was a real sense of community with the families that live there on those, uh, those back streets. And you don't see that so much. I wonder, though, you know, I did talk to a, a couple of residents of Waikiki who, who love living there. And, you know, they're a little worried about, you know, what this might mean by expanding the resort district. It varies building by building if you've got, you know, mainly owner occupants in the building, you know, versus uh, transients. Yeah, I, I don't think it will have a negative effect on that because, as you pointed out earlier, the, most of the places that are, that are really affected by this change are already operating as a hotel. The way the law is written now, of course, we're only at the beginning of this process, so things might change as it works its way through the Planning Commission and the Council. But as it stands now, individual units that are being used as vacation rentals, even if they're in the apartment mixed-use or apartment district of Waikiki, would not be allowed. Only, if, only those that are in the resort mixed-use area. 
Well, this does expand, though, uh, to that area known as the Gold Coast. Yes, it does. It does expand to the Gold Coast area. So it does allow for those units in the Gold Coast as well. That's true. Do you see an issue with parking? Because I know you have the parking authority down there. Does it affect what you're trying to do there? No, I don't think so. We're still moving forward, working with the city to try and improve access to Waikiki and, and add more parking. I don't think this bill has a negative effect on that. The, the major difference in Waikiki now is that last year, the city proposed and the council passed a bill that basically eliminated all commercial parking requirements in Waikiki. Okay. And so then with this bill, no effect? No. Anything that you proposed as far as the changes to this initial bill? No, we did not propose any amendments at this time. We're, we're working with DPP and going to work with the commission and with the council as it goes forward, as different ideas might, might be proposed. But we uh, support the bill. I have heard from some groups that they are concerned because there really isn't something that addresses the enforcement piece of this. And that's just been a long-standing criticism of DPP. It seems like the, there are several parts of the bill that, that make it easier for DPP to enforce it. Of course, it follows through the, the, the requirements on advertising. Basically, under this, this, the bill does not change the fact that simply advertising a vacation rental unit is illegal. And so that was the big difference that came out of um, Bill 89. And uh, that has been reinforced, I think, by the fact that there will be an enforcement, more enforcement effort coming out of the DPP in terms of they talk about creating a, a branch that that's their main function. And then the other part of this is that they would redirect any permit fees to go directly to this enforcement effort, which would be a, uh, a big plus because part of the problem is that, you know, obviously you need to pay these additional staff members. So I think they tried to work out a way to make that possible as well. And I think that the the main concerns that caused them to go to having to do a whole new bill was issues over the ability to enforce the additional um, requirements. I think that the Bill 89 had allowed for some limited, you know, bed and breakfast or hosted vacation rentals in the in the, um, in the residential area. And some of the requirements, the, the lottery, the spacing between them made a, for a very difficult situation. I think, though, I, I'm hearing from some groups that they would prefer to see the enforcement uh, beefed up first. Bef- Anything else that you think would be pertinent just from where you sit from uh, from the, gr- the crown jewel there in Waikiki? <laughs> Well, I just I just think it's important to, to keep in keep in perspective that this is a huge community issue and needs to be addressed. That it, we can't afford to not uh, move forward on, on the, and gain control of this very chaotic situation. That was Rick Eggett of the Waikiki Improvement Association talking about the latest proposal to deal with short-term vacation issues a hot-button issue. Uh, Yesterday's public hearing uh, lasted five hours and drew some 350 participants. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Time now for your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, ooahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Today is Queen Lili Uokalani's birthday, so for today's Backyard Quiz, we're shining the spotlight on one of Hawaii's most beloved and prolific poets and songwriters, and we'll be featuring her music throughout the show. The opening lyrics to one of her melodies have been translated uh, as, Proudly swept the rain by the cliffs as it glided through the trees, still following ever the bud, the ahi ahi lehua of the veil. 
Do you know the name of this song? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nairithawaii.com. More pests, less money. That's the outlook for the fight against invasive species on the Big Island. The Hawaii Invasive Species Council just approved next year's budget for statewide projects. The Big Island Invasive Species Committee faces a shortfall of over $200,000. The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote sat down with Springer Kay of the Big Island Invasive Species Committee to talk about what this means. There were nearly $10 million in requests for funds for projects, almost all of which are are real needs for the state of Hawaii. So this is a competitive process. We engage in it every year, but it is very unusual for us to see such an extreme drop. We're looking at about $220,000 less than we received uh, last year. The demand and the need for funding continues to grow. New invasive species just continue to arrive in Hawaii, and the pot of money just doesn't uh, change. In the meeting notes about the 2022 budget and how the resources of the Hawaii Invasive Species Council were divided up among the many worthy programs, they clarified that oftentimes funding shortfalls did not have to do with a lack of merit of the program, but a lack of resources. Do you know why Bay Island Invasive Species Committee of the many different invasive species committees, as well as other statewide programs, is facing this shortfall? Yes. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's really not a, an issue of merit. Uh, in recent years, there's been a lot of new tests on, on the Big Island. Last year, we received more money than any of the other invasive species committees. And last year, we asked for a lot more money than we did this year. So, you know, in a downturn year, we tried to be conservative with the amount of money we asked for. It turns out that probably wasn't the best strategy since the funding was basically awarded on a strict percentage of basis. So when the council noted that this was not um, in any way a reflection of our lack of performance, I'm, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> it's really true. We, uh, we were able to successfully announce the eradication of one of our target species last year. We have a tremendous output of, of effort and success. Our team just does a phenomenal job, and I'm so proud of them every day. And unfortunately, sometimes the, when you roll the funding dice, it just doesn't, doesn't go your way. Can you give listeners some specifics on what the Big Island Invasive Species Committee does on Hawaii Island? Sure. We have a really broad range of programs, and I have to say working here is a lot of fun because we have such a diversity of projects that we're involved in. So we have a team that's involved in invasive plant control. They might get to hop in a helicopter and fly to some of the most remote, beautiful forests on the island of Hawaii to remove invasive ginger that's starting to take over the understory of an otherwise pristine native forest. And we do that to protect biodiversity so that the native plants can continue to fill in and be part of the watershed there. That same team on a different week might be working right hand-in-hand with the community in their backyard, removing a new invasive species before it ever has a chance to get to the native forest. And that's really the need of it is is to try and provide this uh, layer of protection to keep new invasive pests from ever reaching our most important natural resources. And that includes our forests, our uh, farms, and other parts of our economy and, and way of life. 
we have a team that works on training members of the community to identify and control little fire ants or rat lungworm disease or the new invasive beetle, the Queensland longhorn beetle that's attacking a lot of our fruit trees and killing them. And we have a team that's really dedicated to uh, rapid ohia death management. So they provide the capacity for the island to go out and survey, determine where new outbreaks of rapid ohia death are occurring and figure out whether there's anything we can do to to stop the spread in that area and provide research support to the scientists who are trying to answer those questions. Some idea of the, the breadth of, of what we're doing. Yeah, that's quite an overview, and I'm sure it's just a sample of what you're charged with, given the amount of biodiversity on Hawaii Islands, let alone statewide. When you're talking about these programs and the opportunity that opportunities that you have and provide for the community to work in the fight against invasive species, now that you're facing this just shy of a quarter of a million dollar shortfall in budgeting, what's on the chopping block in terms of your staff and programming? Well, you know, of course, anyone who participated in the meeting could see that there was, we had a lot of support, that folks are trying to find ways to fill those gaps for us. So we might be able to gear up some additional funds. We're looking at federal grants. The county has stepped in with providing more money. So we'll keep working to close that gap. But with a small organization, a whole program might be run by one specialist. Quarter million dollars, that's four positions. That could be four whole programs, like our entire little fire ant education program, just gone, or our entire nursery endorsement program that teaches uh, nursery owners to recognize and not import invasive plants and plant pests. That could just be gone. (laughs) And unfortunately, as we learned in the last economic downturn, when these positions are cut, we don't necessarily get them back. That specialized, highly educated person has gone on with their life. We don't necessarily have the funds to ramp back up the moment where uh, leaders in the legislature or others are willing to fund that kind of work may have passed. So it can mean that those programs are gone forever. And we're not alone. You know, the entire Oahu Little Fire Ant response did not receive funding in this, this round. It doesn't mean that program's going to be gone, but it's definitely at risk. As I mentioned, the, the programs that are specifically at risk are ones where the the entire program is led by just one person. So that might mean that we no longer staff a position to survey actively for invasive plants and make decisions about which ones to treat. Instead, maybe we'll keep our entire crew going that is controlling the plants we know about now. That means that another sleeper pest like Queensland longhorn beetle or, you know, on the devil weed that we were able to identify this year, one of the world's worst um, invasive plants for tropical agriculture, plants like that could slip through the cracks, and we won't know about them until they are widespread and established. So you're talking about a shift where we become more reactive rather than proactive based on the resources that are available. That's exactly right. Mm. Because if you can identify a problem but you don't have the resources to address it, sometimes that can feel like a misplaced use of funds. Maybe you're just going to have to deal with the problems you know about now. That's not the ideal way to go about it. We want to see more investment in finding those problems while they are still cost-effective to address. Five years ago today, the Governor Ige announced the publication of the Hawaii Interagency Biosecurity Plan, and it was a very comprehensive look at all of the things that we need across each agency that has a stake in invasive species management, whether that new policies, new staffing, new resources, or just maintaining the programs that we have now. There are about 150 actions in that plan. Right now, only about a third of them have been implemented. Among those are increased levels of staffing for the Hawaii Department of Agriculture to put boots on the ground to address these kinds of things. When you look at that biosecurity plan, though, some of the key actions that are needed are in pre-border and border security. That's stopping these pests from getting here in the first place. Our job at BISC is to be a cleanup crew. Once something's already here, we do our best to try and contain it, eradicate it if we can. Um, sometimes all we can do is teach you how to manage it best. But there's another whole group that's working at the border to stop these things from getting in here. Well, only 4% of those actions have been implemented after five years of having this uh, biosecurity plan in place. 
So the money hasn't been provided, the facilities haven't been provided, the staffing hasn't been provided, and that's why we're failing. It's, it's not that there aren't good people doing this work and that they're not trying their hardest, but they simply haven't been given the resources they need to do the job. And until we can close those doors and stop new invasive pests from coming in, it doesn't really matter how much money you throw at a program like this. We can only do a small piece of it. We'll do our best. We'll do a great job. Don't get me wrong, but there's only so much we can do. That was Springer K, Program Manager for the Big Island Invasive Species Committee, speaking with the conversation, Savannah Harriman Pote. Kay says that if you're concerned about invasive species on our island, the best thing you can do is to keep your eye out and call the hotline 643 PEST in order to report an animal or plant that you don't recognize. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Dental Service, believing that everyone deserves a healthy smile and sharing guidelines for oral health, such as seeing a dentist twice a year. Learn more at hawaiidentalservice.com slash findadentist. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Patrice Fecchioni, author of Step Into Nature. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about nurturing imagination and spirit in everyday life. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Do COVID survivors need to get vaccinated? Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Anita Hofschneider has the answer in today's reality check. She joins us this morning. Hi, Anita. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I'm glad you decided to uh, delve into this because I think um, a lot of us know people who may have gotten COVID, maybe a mild case of COVID over the past year. And yeah, they're probably wondering about the natural immunity that they build up. Yeah, and I think, you know, the takeaway um, from my article after, you know, reviewing some of the research and, and interviewing some experts is that natural immunity really varies from person to person. And if you've got COVID, um, you just don't know how long your immunity will last. And so for a healthy person, it might last for um, three months, is what one expert said, or it could last even longer. But since we don't know, that's why... Um, the CDC is, and um, experts are still recommending that people get vaccinated even after they've gotten sick. Yeah, so just don't chance it. <laughs> yes, and there's some studies that show that um, your immunity will be strengthened if you do get at least one vaccination shot after um, getting sick with COVID. And there was also another interesting study that showed that, um, you know, for some people, they don't actually develop very strong immunity to COVID, especially young people. And one um, expert actually explained to me, it has to do with, you know, how intensive um, of a sickness you got. So for people who are hospitalized with COVID, are struggling with the virus for many weeks, they probably emerge from that with stronger immunity than somebody who had a mild infection and was only, only sick for a couple of weeks. And so um, the recommendation is, you know, regardless of what COVID experience you have, that you go ahead and get vaccinated because that will, um, you know, help prevent a, um, you know, a, a, a really bad reaction if you get reinfected. Yeah. And I've talked to people, you know, like you said, on that side of the spectrum who maybe were dealing with long COVID. Uh, and, and yeah, you just wonder, you know, um, the, about the antibodies uh, in their system. Yeah, and, you know, one of the reasons why we decided to do this story was because there was a recent study um, with data from Israel that found immunity to the, the Delta variant uh, was stronger among people who got infected with COVID compared with people who are who are just vaccinated against the, the virus. And so um, this study hasn't yet been peer-reviewed, but it was a very large sample, and so it's been circulating, and some people have been pointing to it as an example of Okay, well, if you created, if you built up more immunity from getting sick than from vaccination, then maybe vaccination isn't necessary. But experts say that this is kind of the wrong takeaway to get from that study um, because, you know, they're saying that, yes, you know, for some people, immunity might be stronger after you've been sick, but we just don't know how long that'll last. And that, um, you know, having a vaccine is, is effectively a booster shot. Um, for you and to sort of just 
basically strengthen your odds that you, uh, you know, will stay healthy if you get sick again. And, you know, we have seen cases where maybe someone has just gotten one of the two shots and they ended up getting, you know, uh, either Delta or, or, or the original COVID. Uh, so, yeah, it just really runs the gamut. It really does. Um, and actually, one thing, one aspect of that Israel study that that's not as, as mentioned is um, they did see that people who had been sick and who got at least one vaccination shot um, did have build stronger immunity. So it's it's really about kind of um, protecting yourself as well as protecting the system. So as you know, here Hawaii has really struggled with our hospitals just being overtaxed, and um, one of the um, ways to kind of help you know, prevent overtaxing the system is for, um, you know, each person to sort of be on the safer side, even if they think that they might have gotten some immunity, um, you know, being on the safer side and getting that vaccine shot is what I'm being told people should do. Yeah. And then now we've got the uh, plan for the booster shots. So those who are, uh, um, you know, have an immune system that are, it's compromised, you know, those are, those folks are being encouraged to uh, sign up and talk to their doctor about getting that booster and then I guess it's, what, September 20th, right, when uh, that program opens up uh, to a broader group? Yes, that's my understanding as well. All right. Well, thanks so much, Anita. Thank you for having me. That was reporter Anita Hofschneider with today's Reality Check. To read her full story, visit civilbeat.org. turn our attention now to our mental health. The Delta variant is triggering a second wave of stress. The demand for healthcare professionals is growing. And today we throw the spotlight on a new program offered by Hawaii Pacific University to grow the number of psychologists in the islands. We talked to HBU's Vince Tsushima and Kelsey Okamura about a doctorate program that just launched this past fall. Its uh, second cohort has just been selected, but if you're looking for a career change, here's what you need to know for the spring. The doctorate of psychology most people are more familiar with the term PhD, but the doctorate of psychology has been around for about, gee, over 50 years, over half a century now. You can kind of think of it as a professional degree, like an MD or a doctorate in dentistry. Yeah. So with the society, the focus is uh, it's a greater focus in the curriculum on uh, doing treatment, doing assessment and treatment. You've just uh, launched it this past fall. You had your first cohort come through. Exactly. We started in fall 2020 with a cohort of 13. And already with this second cohort, which will be starting fall 2021, we got a cohort of 19. Dr. Okamura, you know, talk about what you're hearing and seeing just about the need for professionals in our community. Yeah, no, I think we're seeing a lot of, uh, you know, mental and behavioral health issues come to fruition as a result of COVID-19, you know, the pandemic and the ongoing stressors here. Um, uh, in Hawaii and across the nation. I think the American Psychological Association did a updated survey in January 2021, and they said, you know, they found that 9 in 10 adults say that, that they're experiencing some kind of stress related mm-hmm. to the pandemic. And we've seen other things kind of locally to highlight some of the mental health needs. You know, there is a recent two-part series documentary looking at the impacts of COVID-19, especially in substance abuse, mental health, and behavioral health disorders. And we're seeing it across very different settings. Uh, So we're seeing it both in outpatient kind of numbers rising, as well as a lot more hospitalization. And I think, you know, especially when you think about mental health for youth and families, I think given that schools were shut down for quite some time during 2020, I think the Department of Health saw a decrease in the number of referrals for mental health services. And so, you know, there's a lot of kind of societal impact um, that has really kind of exacerbated the stress levels and, and how people are kind of handling their stress um, during this time. And, and, and Dr. Tsushima, to, uh, talk about, you know, what you've seen as I guess opportunities here 
you know, in the islands, because you attended University of Hawaii, right? I mean, so for the folks that want to stay home and go to, you know, the universities here, you, you know, they're looking mm-hmm. for programs, you know, how, how can they make that work? Well, what's really wonderful right now is that, you know, there are a number of opportunities for, um, you know, uh, students who want to, uh, you know, train in Hawaii, not, not only, you know, take classes, but as well as uh, get, you know, internship, practicum experiences in Hawaii. Um, yeah, there are a lot of great opportunities right now. I got my BA in psychology at UH Manoa, but, you know, UH Manoa has its PhD program in clinical psych. Uh, Chaminade has its ID program, but now, you know, we have our ID program going on as well. And uh, we've seen, you know, these programs do well in large part because of student interest, certainly, but also because of the really strong need in Hawaii. A lot of our applicants are Hawaii people. Um, and, you know, and whenever uh, we've spoken with these applicants, they are quite aware of just how uh, Hawaii just like um, the rest of the world and the country, but Hawaii is not spared of the pain that the pandemic has caused. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, just to kind of riff off from what Dr. Okumura was saying, in addition to uh, increases in depression, anxiety, and suicide, you know, we clearly have had an uptick uh, in violent crimes, in domestic violence. And, you know, those aren't just criminal matters. They're mental health matters. You know? So because of these things going on, if there's any silver lining to all this is right now we have a number of programs that, you know, people can choose or apply to to get training, to get doctoral level mental health training. Yeah. And, and that's what uh, Hawaii certainly needs. And if there are folks that are interested, you know, who may be living on the neighbor islands, you know, how does that work? Oh, OK. Great question. The way it works for us anyways at HPU is that for many of our courses, for each year, whether you're a first year, second year student, and so on. And typically for society, it's four years of coursework and one year of internship. Most of the classes are scheduled to be, to occur during the day, during business hours on two days out of the week, business week. Yeah. Which allows the other uh, three days for work or whatever other matters that the student needs to attend to. Yeah. And how, how that matters for neighbor island folks is that this allows them to uh, come to Oahu. Yeah. For the two days and then return back. Uh, to the neighbor islands to do whatever work or other matters that they need to address, yeah? And that's one of the things uh, we really have made a point to schedule with our courses, keeping in mind that how beneficial that is for our neighbor island people. With the pandemic, there, there's been a lot of distance learning. Was there any aspect of that for the first cohort? Oh, you know, yes. You know, um, you know, just like everyone else, uh, last fall 2020 and into spring 2021, uh, yeah, our classes were online, you know, for uh, the public and for our students and faculty safety. But in the summer, you know, we've been going back to face-to-face and uh, plan to do so um, this coming fall. And Kelsey, I mean, you know, you talked about the, the rates of suicide and those kinds of things going up. You know, we did see, you know, a number of cases on the neighbor islands and great concern about our young people and, and the depression that they struggle with. Absolutely, yes. And, and you, you, you can anticipate as things kind of progress, you know, with this pandemic, I think, you know, we all want to get to a sense of normalcy. And it, it's, it's going to be really difficult, I think, in terms of, you know, mm. slowly transitioning back, um, you know, across all aspects of uh, day-to-day life. And even more so why having trained mental health professionals in the community to help with some of that transitioning. So, you know, we think about clinical expressions of mental and behavioral health disorders where you have a diagnosis and require some kind of psychological support. And there are gradations of that, right? We know things are not black and white. And so when you think about the continuum of services that people might need in terms of mental health, that's why I get really excited about our training program in that, you know, we're training psychologists to be, uh, you know, careful critics of science and to use their clinical science skills in order to impact not only at the individual level, but also at the societal level. So thinking about ways to get mental health um, curriculum and interventions into larger settings like schools or in public health settings or working in community outreach. These are all kind of mental health activities um, and activities that psychologists lead. Uh, that are really important and going to be really helpful for the infrastructure of our society as we start to get back to normalcy. 
And we have heard a lot about the homeless and the housing crisis and the mental health issues uh, for the folks that are living on the street. You know, there are many people that want to do something to help this cross-section of our population. You know, I don't know how the the internships work, you know, where you f- your students are placed so they can get a bird's eye view of, of what it's really like out there. Yeah, so I think we do have a number of really great community-based sites. We've partnered with a lot of uh, group practices as well as um, public sector uh, community organization. And, and the wonderful thing about these intern, uh, these are practicum sites, actually. So when they're in the doctoral program, they, they go to practicum and then they do one year of a pre-doctoral internship uh, at the end of their training. And so the practicum sites that we did coordinate for the program um, this year are all really kind of aligned with our program values. So, um, you know, using science and evidence to inform clinical decision making, making sure that our trainees can advocate for the mental health needs of their clients and understand kind of a systems perspective to um, how all these different things that might be going on in a client's ecology really affect their mental and their physical health. And, you know, to answer your question specifically about um, homelessness, you know, that certainly we consider that, you know, a a part of the behavioral health spectrum. Um, And I think a lot of our students are going to interact with people in the community, clients in the community who are struggling with houselessness and homelessness. And so they're going to get, you know, really careful and really great supervision from some of our community psychologists out in the field right now. So I, I think of a few places like Waianae Coast Comprehensive Health Center and Waimanalo Health Center, where some of our trainees are going, where they're going to be deeply rooted in the community, but adhering to their kind of psychological science training and providing services to the people in the community that need it the most. As Dr. Okamura pointed to, one of the things that is really valued in our program is advocacy. Yeah, particularly because of Hawaii and Hawaii's needs. Things have to be changed on a political level, you know, and for that to happen, we are looking, um, among the things we look for in candidates besides good grades and your interest in psychology and wanting to help people, at least in the applicants that we're looking at, we certainly value um, their interest in uh, advocacy, in, in helping groups, the um, uh, underprivileged, underserved groups, and so on. One of the uh, big underserved groups are Hawaii people in rural areas on the neighbor island. Yeah. So an example, not the example, an example is someone who wants to advocate and get services out to those folks who aren't getting services. And also another point Dr. Okamura was pointing to, um, and I just really want to emphasize here, is that an important distinction that's growing now is really the chatter on the level of the American Psychological Association is that a, a distinguishing characteristic of doctoral programs are that these are programs that will foster leadership development. And it goes hand in hand with advocacy. So if you want to distinguish a master's program from a doctoral program, and that's important for the uh, person out there who wants to, you know, do this kind of work, I think it's important for them to consider, is that if you go for your master's, which is absolutely fine, if you want to do therapy, that will probably do the trick for you for the most part. But if you're interested in advocacy uh, um, and being a leader in mental health services, the doctoral program is the program that will orient you to help you develop those strengths. And that's certainly what is part of the HPU model. We've been hearing from HPU's Vince Tsushima and Kelsey Okamura about a new doctoral program at Hawaii Pacific University. Check our website later for links to HPU. In celebration of Queen Liliuokalani's birthday today, we tested your knowledge of her lyrics for today's Backyard Quiz. In what is perhaps her most well-known song, the opening verses are translated as proudly swept the rain by the cliffs as it glided through the trees, still following ever the bud, the ahi-ahi lehua of the veil. They may be less recognizable when they're not in Olelo, Hawaii, but those are the lyrics from Aloha Oe, the answer to today's backyard quiz. Alas, no winners. 
But uh, that's our quiz for today. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Aloha. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with new contemporary acquisitions on view, including works by Jennifer Steinkamp, Lee Hua Yi, and Richard Mizrak. Honolulumuseum.org. On the Oregon-California border, all along the Klamath River Basin, drought is punishing everyone. Farmers, native tribes, fish, and birds. We have a situation now where nobody is winning. The farmers want water, and that's exactly what they're not getting right now. We'll hear stories from upstream and down the Klamath River and ask what can be done to ease an historic water crisis. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Marvel Studios will release its first film centered around an Asian superhero tomorrow. It's titled Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. It stars Simu Liu, a rising actor best known for the Canadian television series Kim's Convenience. It also features martial arts movie legends uh, Tony Leung and Michelle Yeoh. It's directed by Destin uh, Daniel Critton. He was born and raised on Maui. The Conversations, Russell Subiano talked with him about making the film. All I ever wanted was a normal life. My son, the Ten Rings, gave our family legendary power. Show me you are strong enough to carry that. You made a few small features at the start of your career. I am not a hipster. Short Term 12, The Glass Castle, Just Mercy. What do you think Marvel saw in those films that gave them the confidence to hand you the reins of this one? I mean, at its core, this movie really is a small family drama that's wrapped in the genre of a martial arts movie and a big action superhero movie. And I, I do think one of the strengths that Marvel has in, in all of their movies is a concentration on character and relationships. And, and I, I think that's what they connected to in the movies that I've done up until this point. And it, was, it really was something that they constantly reminded me of to remember to infuse into this movie as well. Yeah, I definitely saw a very strong family dynamic within the film. And, and uh, you know, us coming from Hawaii, that's, you know, family is strong. And so I really appreciated that about the film. I grew up in Waimea on the Big Island. I know you grew up in Haiku on Maui. The populations of our towns are approximately the same. And we're approximately the same age. I still feel like I'm a few years away from having the skill set to produce a show at NPR. What was it like for you to go from small town to small films to the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Were you 100% ready or was it still kind of a leap of faith? I mean, I feel like every, every movie is a complete leap of faith for me. I walk into pre-production on, on every movie and feel completely out of my element, <laughs> feel like how in the world did I get here? There's no way I'm going to pull this off. All of the self-doubt comes in. And I don't know, the, the more that I, that, I, that I explore this industry and meet more people that I respect and admire and have admired their work, I have found that the, the people who, who I really respect the work that they do feel that same way. They, they often feel that that self-doubt and that pressure and to me those are people who are just honest because we're particularly in in if whatever field you're in if you are pushing your own limits you're always doing something you haven't done before so it's always going to feel really scary and 
this was def definitely very scary when I started, but I, I was working alongside a pretty incredible team of people who I really grew to love. And, and on screen, this is a family drama behind the, the camera. We really did become a family as over the course of the two years making this. When they announced this, the movie, I was really, really excited. Kind of tongue in cheek, I ended up tweeting Marvel, hey, are we gonna talk or what? So I'm very glad I did that. He's so intense as this character. Shang-Chi was made for Simu, and I could feel his passion for it. He's brought back into his father's world and has to deal with coming face to face with him again. And this is a much meaner and more hardened father. And then crazy stuff happens after that. <laughs> you know, when Marvel announced back in 2018 that it, they intended to bring Shang-Chi into the MCU, how much did Simu Liu's tweet actually factor into his casting as Shang-Chi? <laughs> I mean, in reality, not at all. I mean, I'm not sure what was happening in maybe uh, the the ether, <laughs> yeah. or yeah. if there was some pos positive vibes going out into the air. And But we didn't know about the tweet until afterwards. So the, the hard fact is that Simu was wonderfully, you know, she discovered by our, First of all, our, our casting director, um, Sarah Finn, who was doing a, a search of, of every every actor in the business who, who could possibly play this role. And then Simu came in and proved himself repeatedly over the course of three pretty intense auditions. And, and he really just proved himself to be the, the right one for this character. My family and I are huge fans of Kim's Convenience, so when he was cast, we were thrilled. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've talked to several actors and filmmakers this year, either from Hawaii or with strong ties to Hawaii, and the consensus I'm hearing is that opportunities are on the rise for Indigenous and minority filmmakers to tell stories that would have been near impossible to make maybe 20 or 30 years ago. In your experience, do you feel the film industry is becoming more inclusive? And if more doors were open for you, what would be your dream project? I, I do think that in, in general, there I am seeing more and more people either rising into positions of power who are now decision makers, who are either minorities themselves or people who are true champions of diversity. It is still a slow moving train, I would say. And there's, I, we are all still battling the pressure of an old regime, not allowing new diverse voices into the mix. But I, I have found it to be a, a pot going in a positive direction that, that is exciting. It is really exciting to have been able to helm a movie like this, which would not have been even thought of as as a possibility five, 10 years ago. So I'm, I'm excited about the future. I'm excited about uh, the industry hopefully continuing to understand that if we don't start to tell stories that are a reflection of, of the people who are watching television and movies and a reflection of the true diversity of the world around us, then uh, we're, we're not going to stay relevant as an industry. I, as for my dream project, I don't, every movie that I make at, yeah. at that point in time is my dream project. I make movies not, not really thinking beyond the movie I'm making. And this movie right now was my dream project. I hope the next one will also be my dream project. <laughs> Have you seen any films or series this year that you would recommend to our audience or think more people should be watching? Yeah, a number of, I mean, I, I, Minari is one, is a, a movie that was not um, uh, nominated for Best Picture at, at the Oscars. It was edited by we share an editor, so Harry Yoon, who edited Minari, was, a, was also on Shang-Chi. That's, that's one recommendation. 
that I, I think people should watch. I haven't had a ton of time to watch a lot of things, right. to be honest. Um, but I, you know, I was also able to watch Ju Judas and the Black Messiah with Lakeith Stanfield, who I love. And I thought that movie was pretty incredible. Yeah, he was excellent in Short Term 12, which was my favorite film of 2013. As I mentioned before, me and my family are huge Kim's Convenience fans. So I, what, what I want to know is, is there a secret kimchi cameo somewhere in the movie? <laughs> um, not that I'm aware of, but maybe. Okay. <laughs> thought I would ask. <laughs> I enjoyed the film immensely. Thank you. Yeah, Thank and you I, so much. I'm part Chinese, part Hawaiian, so I'm looking forward to the Hawaiian superhero that comes yeah. into the MCU somewhere down the line. <laughs> that's a that's a good mix right there. Hawaiian Chinese. That's a good yeah. mix. I thought I could change my name. Start a new life. You can't outrun your destiny. afraid of you that was destin daniel cretton director of shang chi and the legend of the ten rings talking with our russell sabiono the marvel film opens in theaters tomorrow That is it for this Thursday. Up tomorrow, we plan to hear from interim school superintendent Keith Hayashi. Got questions or comments? Call or talk back line this afternoon, 808-792-8217. You can email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.